Hi there, everybody. I am John Allen, the editor of Crux. This is Last Week in the Church. Here's what we've got on the menu for you this week. The Pope cracks down on Il Bel Paese, basically tells the Italian bishops he is sick and tired of their failure to implement his annulment reforms. Pope Francis is also getting set to travel to Cyprus and Greece, five-day outing that will showcase his message on migrants. Problems in Paris. Archbishop Michel Alpetit has been forced, after a media expose, forced to acknowledge an ambiguous relationship with an adult woman and has offered his resignation to Pope Francis. In the United States, we're getting ready for a showdown at the Supreme Court on Wednesday. The justices will take up a landmark abortion case out of Mississippi, which some believe could effectively roll back Roe v. Wade, depending on how it's decided. And finally, the spirit of Thanksgiving in and around the Vatican, even though it's not a Vatican holiday, Nevertheless, we'll talk about what various figures in the Vatican might have had to be thankful for this time around. That's what we've got for you this week, so please stick around. All right, last Thursday was, of course, the Thanksgiving holiday. I hope you had a wonderful and blessed holiday wherever you are. Here in Rome, of course, life went on as normal. This is not an Italian holiday. It's not a Vatican holiday. It's, it's pretty uniquely American, to be honest about it. Uh, but nevertheless, those of us who were American expats here in Rome, uh, I think, feel even more compelled, therefore, to celebrate it. It's the one time during the year when you have a built-in excuse for inviting every American you've ever met in Rome over to your house and partying with them. That's what we did. It was a complete blast. And we're still gorging ourselves, by the way, on leftover turkey and stuffing. And I actually even made a turkey carcass soup, which my wife, known for her discerning taste, tells me was pretty good. So I hope you had as much fun wherever you were. We begin this week with the Pope sort of taking charge in his own backyard. When Pope Francis was elected, he kind of downplayed many of the traditional titles of the Pope. They're usually printed on the front page of the Vatican's yearbook. He had on the front page printed just Bishop of Rome. That was the only title that he really felt particularly resonated with him. The others he had consigned to somewhere near the back. One of those traditional titles is Primate of Italy. But the fact that the Pope kind of shunned the title doesn't mean he's not willing to play the gig. In fact, Few popes in recent memory have been as aggressive as about, about trying to put their own imprint uh, on the local church here in Italy as Pope Francis. The most recent example came on Friday when the Vatican announced that the pope was creating a special Vatican-centered commission to oversee implementation of his annulment reform in Italy. Now, this is kind of a big deal, you know, ecclesiologically speaking. Basically, it's the Pope saying, I, I have lost confidence in the Italian bishops' ability to get this done for themselves, and so I'm taking direct charge. This commission is going to be centered in the Roman Rota. That is the main working court here in the Vatican, and most of its workload is annulment cases. So they have lots of experience with this kind of thing. 
basically what happened is this. In 2015, Pope Francis put out a document called Mitus Udex. It was intended to reform the annulment system. The idea was to make annulments less cumbersome, like to make the system more user-friendly, to make it faster, because here in Italy and in other parts of the world, these cases sometimes unfold over years if they're contested, and also to make them free so they're not financially out of the reach of ordinary people. Now, you have to remember the context. That reform was announced in between the Pope's two synods on the family. You'll remember the hot-button issue with those synods was whether divorced and civilly remarried Catholics ought to be able to get communion. Some bishops who weren't so wild about giving communion to the divorced and civilly remarried saw annulment reform as a kind of compromise measure, as a way to head off the more sweeping conclusion. Pope Francis basically took that off the table. Uh, he issued this reform over the summer before the Second Synod, so it was basically a way of saying from the to the bishops, what I want out of this synod isn't just annulment reform, that's already done. I want this pastoral solution. And in the end, of course, Pope Francis got it in the sense that, I guess, he gave it to himself in the form of his concluding documents, document to those two synods, Amoris Laetitia. But that wasn't to say that this annulment reform was supposed to be ignored, that it was just politically convenient. He was in earnest about it. He wants it to happen, still does. Six years later, however, many observers of the Italian church would say, eh, not so much. Now, honestly, if you know anything about Italy, the fact that the Italian ecclesiastical bureaucracy has failed to implement a reform after six years isn't exactly, you know, man bites dog kind of news. I mean, this is the kind of thing that happens all the time around here. But on this front, Pope Francis obviously has just run out of patience. And so he's decided to centralize this process in the Vatican. One has to love the language of the edict, by the way, that was issued on Friday, because it said the purpose of this reform is to help the Italian church welcome the reform. Well, had they welcomed the reform six years ago, obviously, it wouldn't be necessary. Now, it remains to be seen if this is actually going to make uh, any difference. Italian ecclesiastical, well, Italian bureaucrats generally, whether they're in the church or anywhere else, are geniuses at bobbing and weaving and running out the clock and doing nothing until people forget what they were supposed to be doing in the first place. You know, we will see if they get away with following that script this time or not. It is interesting, however, that Pope Francis obviously feels comfortable taking direct personal control in Italy in a way that he hasn't done in other countries. I mean, it's not like Italy is the only place he's had problems, right? I mean, in Germany, there's been this back and forth between the Vatican and the German bishops over their synodal path. In America, there continue to be bishops who kind of defy the Pope's pastoral line on abortion, or sorry, on pro-choice politicians and whether they should be able to get communion because of their positions on abortion. But he hasn't created commissions for those countries saying, sorry, you're no longer in charge, I am. So it just is an indication, I suppose, of how seriously Pope Francis takes his role as the primate of Italy, even if he's not really sold on the title.
Uh, all right, secondly, speaking of Pope Francis, he's not just meddling in Italian affairs this week. He's also packing his bags, getting ready to get on the papal plane once again and set off for an overseas trip. In this case, it is a five-day journey that will take him first to the divided island and nation of Cyprus, divided between a Turkish-controlled north and a Greek-controlled south, and then to Greece itself, which, by the way, is a peninsula, so water is going to be a big deal on this trip. It is a journey where several issues will come into play, but probably none so prominently as the European migrant and refugee crisis. Obviously, immigration has been a front-burner issue for Pope Francis since the moment of his election in 2013, which occurred at the peak of the first wave of the European crisis. In, in both Greece and Cyprus, this is a hot-button political issue because as island nations, given their location in the Mediterranean, both have been sort of uh, primary points of, of arrival for many migrants and, and refugees. Both, uh, at various points, their, their systems have been on the verge of being absolutely overwhelmed by this kind of tidal wave of humanity that has whooshed through them. Pope Francis, of course, visited when the last time he went to Greece in 2016. He went to the island of Lesbos, which has the country's main refugee, well, depending on what word you want to use, either welcome or detention center. I suppose it's probably a little bit of both. And he's going to visit Lesbos again. Once again, the talk is that, uh, as he did the last time, he will arrange for some of those migrants and refugees to be able to return if not physically with him aboard the papal plane on Rome, at least because of him, and be settled by the community of San Egidio somewhere in Italy. And in Cyprus, he will also be meeting migrants. And these are both places, as I say, where the Pope's message of welcome and compassion and tolerance is, can be, at, in the streets, a kind of tough sell. Because a lot of these people think, hey, we've done our bit. We have more than done our bit. Maybe it's time for somebody else to step up and we should start restricting access. It will be very interesting to see on the ground how the Pope's message plays. I would note for you that you, you have won the lottery in terms of being able to follow this trip because Crux's very own Elise Ann Allen our senior correspondent is going to be on the papal plane, bringing all the latest and greatest to you. And I tell you, she is the best in the business. And so how, whatever the mood is there, she will capture it in full living color. Now, migration is not the only item on the Pope's to-do list. In Cyprus, obviously, conflict resolution will be a key issue. We're talking about a nation lacerated more or less right down the middle for decades. And although the war at the moment between the Turkish and, and Greek sides is cold rather than hot, there is the ever-present fear that things could heat up again. Pope Francis, obviously, will try to want to promote dialogue and reconciliation across the divide. We will see how that effort plays out. Also, 
ecumenism, and especially relations with the Orthodox, will be a huge issue. Both in Cyprus and Greece, Pope Francis will be meeting with the Orthodox leadership, the, the Orthodox archbishops of those places. Greece is an Orthodox church that hasn't always been in a full square and, op, uh, full square and locked position on the issue of ecumenical relations with the Church of Rome. There is a strong conservative wing, a kind of hardline wing in the Greek Orthodox Church centered around the monks of Mount Athos, who probably aren't going to be terribly thrilled to see a lot of what will play out over the next little while. So we will have to be tracking how reaction in these two places is on that front. And finally, also in Cyprus, there's the inter issue of interfaith relations between the largely Orthodox Christian community in the South and the largely Muslim Turkish community in the North. Pope Francis' outreach to Islam has been a front burner issue from, for him also from the very beginning. And it will be fascinating to see how he tries to navigate that issue while also and not doing anything that will move too far or too fast for the Orthodox in the southern part of the island, it will be a, a sort of tightrope act for Pope Francis, but then he's used to it. Third on this week's rundown, Paris. You know, as the famous line from Casablanca goes, we'll always have Paris. Not entirely clear today that that is actually going to be true for Archbishop Michel Aparty who was, of course, appointed to Paris to follow the legendary Cardinal Jean Lustiger by Pope Francis. Aputi won wide acclaim for the way he led the church in Paris through the crisis around Notre Dame Cathedral, of course, the, the fire that broke out there and the reconstruction efforts. And Notre Dame, even though, you know, lots of French Catholics don't actually go to Mass anymore, Nevertheless, Notre Dame still is, in a way, the soul of the nation. And so that tragedy was a huge pastoral crisis of the church in France. Apoty provided kind of presence and level-headed response to it that, that won him a lot of credit. However, what has happened in recent days is that a French media outlet called Le Pont has published an expose asserting that in 2012, Aputi had a, well, kind of murky, I guess is the word for it, murky relationship with an adult woman. So there's no suggestion of, a, of, of abuse here, no suggestion that this, this was anything other than consensual. But nevertheless, they obtained some emails that apparently Aputi thought he was writing to this woman that actually ended up with his secretary and eventually got to this media outlet. The suggestion, I mean, the, the impression you would get from this report was that he was having an affair with this woman. Now, what Apoti has said in response to this expose, he's called it virulent. He has denied that there was anything sexual about his relationship with the woman in question. Uh, however, he has conceded that he, he, he made mistakes in handling this relationship, that basically the, the, the picture he paints is that this was a woman who wanted a very intimate relationship with him, was kind of, in a way, maybe pursuing him, and that he allowed that relationship to sort of linger and you know, met with her on multiple times in ways that he says, looking back, he now realizes he shouldn't have done. 
in response to all of this, Archbishop Apuiti has, has written a letter offering his resignation to Pope Francis. Now, the, the way he has phrased it is that he didn't say to the Pope, I want to resign. Instead, he said, I have put the choice in, in his hands. If he thinks in the, it is in the pastoral best interests of the church in Paris and in France that I leave the scene, I will do it. I, I think the, the early odds here would have to be it is unlikely that the Pope will accept the resignation. Remember, when Cardinal Philippe Barbaran of Lyon in France offered to resign amid a clerical sexual abuse scandal there, in which he had been accused of cover-up, of failure to act, the Pope refused the resignation, only accepted it after Barbaran had been criminally convicted. And recently, when Cardinal Reinhard Marx of Munich in Germany offered a resignation for the corporate failures of the church uh, on the abuse scandals, Francis refused that too. So, you know, it remains to be seen what Archbishop Apute's fate is, but it is another reminder, ladies and gentlemen, of how, to be honest with you, I wouldn't wish being a Catholic bishop these days on my worst enemy. I mean, not only are you leading the church at a time of declining resources, both human and financial, but because of all the scandals, you were under an intense 24-7 media spotlight. And if there is any skeleton in your closet, however ambiguous, it's going to be trotted out in full public view. It is a tough gig. And one only hopes that this resolves itself in a way that doesn't just lay waste to the morale of the church in Paris. Four, in the United States this week, many observers, including the leadership of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, is gearing up for a landmark abortion case in front of the Supreme Court this week. The hearing is to take place on Wednesday. It is a case out of Mississippi in which Mississippi banned abortion after the 15th week of pregnancy. Now, many states already have their own limits on abortion in various ways, but what is unique about this ruling is that since the 1973 Roe v. Wade case legalizing abortion in the United States, the Supreme Court has never before heard a case that involved a limit on abortion prior to the 24th week of pregnancy, which is considered the point of viability in which a fetus could, at least in theory, survive outside the womb. And many analysts believe that if they uphold this Mississippi law, that in effect it marks, if not a reversal, at least a significant rollback of that 1973 landmark Roe v. Wade decision. The Supreme Court, by the way, is also set to hear a couple of cases from Texas in which abortion is actually banned after the eighth week. But in those instances, the legal issue actually focuses on some other dynamics of the law and not so much the substance of the ban, whereas the Mississippi case is directly about whether a, an earlier ban, a ban before the 24th week, is constitutional, is consistent with Roe v. Wade. Bear in mind, there is now a six to three conservative majority on the Supreme Court uh, in the wake of the appointments of former President Donald Trump. And even though this would depart from the established jurisprudence of the court since 1973, and of course, 
Justices generally don't like to do that. Stare decisis, you know, following precedent is kind of their prime directive. But nevertheless, because of the new composition of the court, there is actually some sense that the Mississippi law could actually pass muster. The U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops has, has supported uh, the Supreme Court. The idea of upholding the Missouri law uh, has encouraged them to do so. Obviously, Catholic leaders across the country will be taking a keen interest in how this issue was resolved. If the Missouri law is upheld, one imagines that would set off a flurry of similar efforts in other states to adopt similar restrictive laws. This, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, is why the United States and Europe are so different on the abortion issue. You know, you, you rarely hear abor- European Catholic bishops actually talking about abortion. You, you don't hear it from the Vatican that much, honestly, except in a generic defense of life context. But in America, we hear about it from our bishops all the time. And the reason is because in the United States, abortion is still a live issue, right? I mean, all these years after Roe v. Wade in legislators and in courtrooms, it's still being fought over. In most of Western Europe, it is basically a settled issue and has been for a long time. And given what's happening this week in the Supreme Court, it doesn't look like it's going to be a settled issue in the United States anytime soon. All right, finally, spirit of Thanksgiving in and around the Vatican. Uh, I did a column this week about what various figures in the Vatican might have to be thankful for. I mean, for instance, I suggested that Pope Francis ought to be grateful for a largely, what's the word, compliant, favorable media climate, because it means he's never really asked to explain things that other leaders would have a hard time avoiding. I mean, for instance, he said he was going to Glasgow for the COP26 summit. He said the only reason he wouldn't go is if he had a health problem. That was a month before. In the end, he's a no-show offers no explanation whatsoever, neither has the Vatican, and nobody really seems to be clamoring for it. Or, I suggest the, uh, you know, Italian, Italian Cardinal Angelo Becciu, who is the, you know, the big defendant in the Vatican trial of the century that's currently underway for various forms of financial crime. He had to be down on his knees right now thanking the prosecution for having bungled this so badly so far that the presiding judge recently said he's not even sure this case is ever going to get off the ground. Because were this a streamlined, efficient prosecution, you can bet your bottom dollar that the big game in this hunt is Cardinal Beichu. But right now, it doesn't seem that uh, he, he may not have a great deal to worry about. But here's the note I want to leave you with. I also thought as I was doing this column about what we in the Vatican Press Corps should be grateful for. And obviously, we should be grateful that we have the opportunity to be here in Rome and cover what I consider to be the most fascinating beat in journalism. You know, think about it. I mean, the Vatican rolls up into one ball ritual, romance, art, beauty, politics, scandal, intrigue, history, current events. It's everything. I mean, if you can't get your juices flowing as a journalist on this beat, you really had a, ought to have your heart checked because there is something wrong with you. But here's something else I'm grateful for. 
and that is the friendships that are forged in this beat. You know, I told you we had a Thanksgiving party at our house uh, on Thursday. A lot of the people who came were colleagues, people, uh, fellow journalists here in Rome who do some of the same work. And think about that. There are a lot of other beats where things are really competitive. You don't necessarily become friends until years later. Here, however, we somehow manage to get our competitive juices flowing, but at the same time, support one another, care about one another, have one another's backs, and be the kind of friends that for an expat is really important because remember, here, we don't have access to our families back home for Thanksgiving. Our friends are our proxy families. And so for our proxy family here in Rome, not just journos, of course, but there are a lot of you, I want you to know that Elise and I are profoundly, profoundly grateful. That's our show for this week. Thank you for being with us. We will be here next Monday. In the meantime, keep reading Crux, your one-stop shopping destination for the very best in smart, wired, and independent Catholic journalism. We are online at cruxnow.com. Cruxnow.com. We do have our handy-dandy Donate to Crux box there. If you are so inclined, it would help us get through the, the cold, lean winter months. We would be deeply appreciative. I want you to stay safe, stay healthy over this next week. Have a fantastic and blessed seven days, and we will talk to you again soon.